0: Well, like, like Daniel said, my name is Nathan. It is good to see you. I'm part of our teaching team here at Journey Church, and it is always a pleasure to open up God's Word with you, to, to expound upon it, to, to look at what it would say to us in the life that it would call us to. So Proverbs chapter 5, as Daniel said, we're in a series called Pitfalls, where we are looking at uh, just God's wisdom, God's design for life. And it's really the first nine chapters of Proverbs that we are kind of honing in on. And basically these are nine chapters where we are seeing a father in a sense, teach his son different teachings, different things about life. And as we continue this series, it's become very clear to me as I've studied and kind of read some different things and even listened to Daniel and Kevin preach as well, that to gain understanding in life, To gain understanding in the book of Proverbs in particular, it has a lot to do with thinking, with what we think. I mentioned two weeks ago when I preached Proverbs 3 that Tim Keller in his book on Proverbs, this is what he says, one of the messages of Proverbs is you've never really thought enough about anything. And I think that's true. And if, if it is true about wisdom on any topic... It's especially true of our topic today. The title I've called today's message is Life and Sexuality. In our culture though, sexuality is not about thinking. It's about feeling. It's about who you have chemistry with, what you desire, and seeking satisfaction by being true to those desires, oftentimes at any cost. And culture's view of sexuality has impacted all of us, whether you actually struggle with sexuality or not. Some of us in the room struggle with what I'm going to call sexual foolishness, engaging in sexuality that is not within God's design. But all of us have been touched in some way by sexuality. Maybe if you're here today, maybe you're young or watching online, you're young, you're Single, you have desires that just cannot be satisfied within God's design at this point in your life. Maybe you're married, but you struggle with pornography or desiring sexual intimacy that is outside of God's design. Maybe you're divorced, and what once was enjoyed within God's design is now a stumbling block for you to adjust to in a new normal. Maybe you're widowed and you miss the intimacy that you felt before. Or maybe you're someone who gives counsel to others, which could be any age, a friend, a parent, a grandparent. And one of the key areas where we counsel often is in regards to sexuality. So this is a sensitive subject to be sure, but the writer of Proverbs, this father figure seems to to deem it very, very necessary to consider. So no matter where you are in the room today, we would be wise to think about what the culture is teaching us about sexuality and don't be naive. The culture is telling us ideas about sexuality. Listen to the songs that we love. And it's clear that sexuality is a driving theme. Will poor Taylor Swift ever find love? I'm starting to wonder. Think about the shows and the movies that we watch where it normalizes sexuality outside of God's design and wants us to think like, this is normal. This is okay. This is right. We should accept this. It normalizes affairs. Like, think about how many times you've seen a show or a movie where they're intent, they're trying to get you to root for the affair because they just have such great chemistry. It normalizes even leaving commitment for chemistry, right? Like, you've got the spouse or you've got the person you're engaged to that is just honorable is kind, is sacrificial, is serving. It stands up to his parents for you and yet you leave him for chemistry. I'm talking about the notebook. <laughs> but, but we see these things all the time. Our culture is telling us stories in, in music, and in movies, and books about sexuality. And beliefs about sexuality are fed to us constantly And what is promised by society's view of sexuality is joy, it's satisfaction, it's life. And what drives these narratives in our society is not thinking or discernment, it's feeling, it's desire. And surely if we have desires and feelings, they cannot be wrong, right? Yes, they can actually. Feelings can lie to us. Feelings do lie to us. And God made us feeling creatures. God has feelings. Humanity made in God's image, then we have feelings as well. And feelings serve a purpose in God's world. As Dallas Willard notes in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he says, feelings are, with a few exceptions, good servants. But, they are disastrous masters. Well, how are feelings good servants? Consider the feeling of pain. It can help, in a sense, keep us from even deeper danger or death. Think of a hot stove. You touch the hot stove, the sensation, the feeling of pain keeps an even larger injury from happening. Feelings of joy can give us a glimpse of a divine joy that's available to us. I don't have the quote, but C.S. Lewis basically quipped that if you have a desire that nothing in this world will satisfy, then you're made for another world. It's this idea that we can experience joy, but it also lets us into a deeper reality that there's a joy beyond comprehension that we can experience some in this life because it's made from someone who made this life and we will spend eternity with him. But what happens when feelings have more power to determine our actions than they're designed to? What happens when feelings go from servants to masters? Disaster, that's what happens. So we must be careful. In fact, we must be thoughtful or feelings can become our masters. Yet it's too simple for me to just simply look at you and say, so don't let feelings drive your life. We actually need to do the work. We need to think about what is actually nurturing these desires in us and which of these desires are good and right and which need to be addressed with the teachings of Jesus. And because if these desires that are outside of God's design become our masters, which they often do in sexuality and all kinds of other temptations, we will find ourselves in a pit of sin when we expect those desires to lead to peace and joy. The only way We can get these truths deep into our hearts, like our our human command center, if you will, is to think, is to wrestle with these truths about reality until we actually see the truth as life giving instead of life taking. So today we will wrestle with wisdom in regards to sexuality. And as we do, as we look at Proverbs chapter five, let's consider three ideas today. Number one, the unintentional destruction of sexual foolishness. The unintentional destruction of sexual foolishness. Number two, the intentional delight of sexual wisdom. And then thirdly, the gracious ponderer. So the unintentional destruction of sexual foolishness, the intentional delight of sexual wisdom and the gracious ponderer and see if we can find life in sexuality. So the unintentional destruction of sexual foolishness first. The unintentional destruction of sexual foolishness starts with a call to intention. If you have a copy of God's word, I don't have the verse up here, but verse one of chapter five, we see two commands from the father, pay attention and turn your ear to my words. This father knows that the world that we inhabit has bait everywhere and we have wisdom ADD. We struggle to continue to think and to intentionally focus and think about our feelings and our beliefs because we're constantly distracted by those same desires and feelings and beliefs and the shiny objects that are in our world. And what does this father want his son to think about now? in chapter five, as I've already said, sexuality, but it begins with a warning. Starting in verse three of chapter five, we read this, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Now, this may trigger some of you, and if you already read the text before you came in today, you may be coming in ready, coming in hot, like ready to to fight. I just want to say four quick things before we even get into the warning, four quick things just about the warning itself. Number one, I want to define adultery. What is adultery? A basic definition in our society for adultery is voluntary sexual intimacy between a married person and someone who's not their spouse. So when we say adultery, that's what we're talking about. Okay. Number two, the adulterous woman then is a symbol for adultery in marriage. As we have said, the writer, we said this a few times now throughout these five weeks, the writer of Proverbs personifies both wisdom and foolishness as women. You have lady wisdom in Proverbs three, where I preached a couple weeks ago, and she is more valuable than gold and silver. She's worth desiring above all other things. You have the the quintessential Proverbs 31 woman that everybody feels like they don't measure up to, but want to, right? Like Proverbs lifts women up to a very high degree, but it also talks about women as lady folly or the adulterous woman here today, who is alluring but deadly. But here's the point, this is not a knock on women. And more importantly, I want you to hear this, This text is not placing the blame for adultery on women. Are you tracking with me? Okay, this is just a tool that Proverbs is using as the father speaks to his son. Number three, just because the father's addressing his son doesn't mean it doesn't apply to daughters as well. I'm 43 and in my 43 years, I have known plenty of men who line up a lot like verses three and four. Smooth words bitter in the end and number four this could be true of other sins that entice not just adultery the adulterous woman is a personification of temptation in general and so much of this that we're going to talk about today will apply to other temptations in your life however as you read proverbs you will see other sins like laziness and gluttony and hoarding and greed and more that are addressed And so I believe the father is using the adulterous woman as a metaphor for temptation, but not simply a metaphor. I think the father is specifically speaking and instructing his son about the type of sexual intimacy that will lead to life and the sexual foolishness that leads to death. So with those four Prerequisite, so to speak, on the table. Let's reread the warning again so that we can draw a few things out for us that are significant that we need to wrestle with in regards to the situation. Starting again, verse three, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. The first thing I want you to see about this warning is that sexual foolishness is alluring, but it lacks substance. I find it interesting that the father here, he actually acknowledges the allure of the adulterous woman because I keep wanting you to see this anytime I can stand before you that that what stands between us and wisdom is predominantly our desire, our feelings. He doesn't ignore that desire is actually at play in sexual immorality. But notice that the father, he juxtaposes the allure of sexual foolishness with the reality of its lack of substance. What begins with honey and smooth oil turns out to be bitter and sharp as a double-edged sword, initially sweet, but no substance and a bitter end. So what's the point? Honey cannot satisfy the hungry stomach any more than a drop of water can satisfy a parched mouth. Honey may be sweet to taste, but it does not nourish. Think about your kids, if you have kids in the room, or think about yourself, if you're like me. When you want a snack, it's like, man, candy, a Magnum bar. You ever had a Magnum bar? It could change your life. Double caramel, that oh, sounds so good, it's so sweet, but when you give your kid a candy or, or an ice cream bar for, for a snack when they're, they're hungry, how often does it take for them to come back? Candy tastes good in the moment, but it's not good to actually satisfy the deeper desire that our kids have, which is to be satisfied or to be filled. You see, our desire for sexual delight and intimacy is God-given. It's a legit desire, a legit hunger. That we have. So the enemy then tempts us to then basically settle for a counterfeit intimacy that doesn't actually satisfy. Tim Keller says this in his book on Proverbs, sex without a promise of mutual whole life commitment can lead one party to make a far greater emotional investment than the other with agonizing results. Or it can teach both parties to use sex for pleasure and not for radical self-giving. Either way, it's honey, followed by hunger. Sexual foolishness may have a lure, but it lacks substance. And it ends in dissatisfaction, leaving you still wanting, but now with wounds. But not just that. The second thing this warning teaches us is that sexual foolishness, sexual foolishness is a path. It's not just an act. The lie of the enemy is that engaging in sexual foolishness is just a momentary compromise. And we buy in. We tell ourselves things like, it's just a picture. It's just a scene in a movie. I don't know them. It's just one more gaze at this woman or this man. It's just one night. It's just one inappropriate conversation, just one. It's just an act. But if you look at Proverbs 5, 5, the father tells a different story about the adulterous woman. He says, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. The sexual foolishness of engaging with the adulterous woman is not simply an act of foolishness but an active walk down a foolish path more than a momentary mishap we are taking an off-ramp from the road that leads to life to follow a desire down a path that leads straight to the grave and don't make the mistake of thinking this path only exists or you're only on it if you physically engage in sexual immorality. Because Jesus makes clear that our thought life is in view here too. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, you've heard of that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Greek word translated lustfully is not actually the word for lust, but "epithemeio," which is a verb meaning desire or want, but in the wrong context, a negative desire. What we desire in our hearts that is contrary to God's design and wisdom makes us guilty before God. So what does Jesus say in response to this lofty bar that he has now set for our thoughts and our hearts. Here's what he continues to say in that same chapter. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Hell, you see, it's a path with a destination. We are on a path leading to destruction, and we would be better off losing a portion of our bodies that actually leads our hearts astray than to keep on that path. You see, Jesus and the Father in Proverbs understand something that we often overlook, and this is part three of the warning: sexual foolishness is probable without intention regarding temptation. It's probable. Jesus uses hyperbole to say we should gouge an eye out or cut off a hand as a way to be intentional about temptation. But the father in Proverbs says it a different way. If you look at verse seven, this is what the father says. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. There's intention. Verse eight, keep to a path far from her do not go near her house. When we have desires and feelings that are outside of God's design for life, we must fight temptation for or to those desires with intention, stay away. You see, it isn't over the line to go near the door of the adulterous woman or to walk a path that's near her. That's not over the line, but it puts us closer to a moment of temptation. And this is true of any temptation to sin. We need to draw our paths further away from the sinful act than we typically do. If you're tempted to covet and you lack contentment, don't consistently shop online and have that huge cart. You know what I'm talking about. Christmas list. Here's my cart. Don't do that. Don't gaze upon social media that makes everybody's life look better than yours, which is false, but then makes us, ah, man, my life's terrible. If you're tempted to anger and rage, don't stew on the thoughts that provoke anger and rage in you. You can't always help what you feel, but you can help what you think about. How many of you have been in the car by yourself or somewhere By yourself, and you're playing out an argument. I said this, and she would say that, and I'd zing it back, and she'd be like, Dang, good point. And then, and by the time, am I the only one? Okay, I saw a couple of hands, praise God. In those moments, besides the fact that I always win that argument, half the time I'm more angry about something that the person said in role play than they ever said in real life. It doesn't make sense. If you're tempted to anger, don't do that. If you're tempted to despair, don't partake in substances that are depressants. If you're tempted to accumulate unneeded possessions, unsubscribe from the emails from your favorite store. If you don't have the money, don't carry your credit card with you. And if you are tempted by sexual foolishness, don't watch the show or maybe even don't have the channel. Don't strike up that friendship that you know you want to lead to more. Don't go near the house. Stay away. Build accountability in your life by cultivating friendships with other followers of Jesus where you can be real and you can be vulnerable. Be honest. And if you're in one of those relationships, be trustworthy so that they feel like they can actually share what they're struggling with. We must have intention in all sorts of ways because without intention... We will probably and likely find ourselves on the path to sexual foolishness with the end result being destruction and death. (coughs) And this is clear in the way that the father sets up verses eight and nine. I like the way the NLT says it. it, says this, stay away from her, don't go near the door of her house. If you do, you will lose your honor and will lose to merciless people all you have achieved. Some of your translations, NIV or ESV may say, don't go near lest, lest this is gonna happen. The father isn't very hopeful that his son can resist the allure of sexual foolishness without being intentional regarding temptation. Don't go near, because if you do, it's over. Even just getting near, it's probably over. If you don't have intention in temptation, you will eventually experience the destruction But now the father lines out in verses 9 through 11. Things like loss of honor and dignity. Strangers now feasting on what is yours. Your toil now is the gain of another. Groaning and pain all your life. These are are what's in verses 9 through 11. And if you're like, I don't want that. Well, if, if you're experiencing that, it's not because you don't know. It's because you aren't thinking because what, what the the father says in proverbs 5 is these are the things we would be saying to ourselves in that scenario how i hated discipline how i scorned correction or spurned it how i didn't obey life's teachers notice when all this culminates again i like the nlt in this proverbs 5:14 this is where it ends in this section This is what we would say of ourselves, I've come to the brink of utter ruin and now I must face public disgrace. What began in the privacy of our own heart will end up with a public rebuke. The father loves his son and is showing him the destruction that comes from sexual foolishness. No one sets out on a path seeking destruction They're just following their desires. But the unintended end is destruction nonetheless. So, is sexual desire something we should just try to avoid? Is it wrong? No. It's not wrong. Which leads to the second idea from our text in Proverbs 5, intentional delight of sexual wisdom. You see, sex wasn't a product of the fall. It was God's idea from the beginning, which means that it's inherently good when it's done within its design, within his wisdom. The father doesn't instruct his son to avoid sexual intimacy if you carry on chapter five. No, he, he teaches his son to instead delight in it with God, within God's design, which is within marriage. Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. The father begins to use metaphors to show the wisdom and joy of intimacy within God's design parameters. Water is refreshing and is a source of life. Your own cistern and well signifies the privacy of the marriage bed. Where intimacy with the adulterous woman becomes public and is bitter, leading to death, intimacy within God's design and marriage is private and is life-giving. The father continues in verse 16, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone. Never to be shared with strangers. There is a beauty in the intimacy between a husband and a wife that is not shared by anyone else, only you and your spouse. There is a giving of self to one another that is unique from any other relationship each of you have in the world. And when we experience sex within the wisdom of God's intended results, or within the wisdom of God, there's four, I think in Proverbs 5, four intended results that you see in the text. Verse, eight, verse 18, you see that there's blessing. Blessing in the scriptures means something where flourishing happens. Blessed are the meek. If you were here in the fall, you heard the Beatitudes. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who are persecuted. These are blessings. They're saying that you will actually find flourishing and life. That's what blessing means in the scripture. That God's hand is on it. We flourish in the ways we are intended to flourish when we practice sexual wisdom, which for some of us means obtaining from sex if you're single or engaging in proper sexual intimacy in marriage. Blessing. But not just that, the second thing it says is joy, joy, something that's very elusive in our broken world, yet I think it's precisely joy that we desire when we desire intimacy. We desire to be fully seen, fully known, and yet fully loved and accepted And sexual intimacy within God's wisdom is actually a place where you can find that and it brings joy. The third third result we see is satisfaction. This is what we all seek. This is what drives the allure of sex. We want satisfaction. But aside from momentary pleasure, lasting satisfaction is as elusive as joy in our world apart from God In the words of the famous poet Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. But Proverbs says, you can. It can be found in the beauty of sexual intimacy within marriage. Satisfaction in each other's bodies and in your marital love, which leads to the fourth result, intoxication with love. This is the feeling that drives much of our culture's infatuation with sex and romance. We want to be intoxicated with love. We want to be drunk on romance. We want it so bad sometimes that we give ourselves to others in sexually foolish ways that damage our souls and deaden our actual love nerve cells. We wouldn't know love if we felt it. Yet Proverbs says it's within God's wisdom of self-giving love in marriage that we actually find this. What we find in this intoxication of love, this satisfaction and joy is the blessing of a type of love that is true and is different from what we think would actually make us happy. To be with the one who knows you and still has committed themselves to you for life is where true sacrificial self-giving and other honoring love is found which means one thing brothers and sisters is implicit to sexual wisdom there must be intention to delight in sexual wisdom You see, you don't experience blessing and joy and satisfaction or the intoxication of love in marriage apart from intention. It's got to be cultivated. We need intention to delight in sexual wisdom. We need to bring intention to intimacy. But this also means bringing intention to pursuing your spouse. Because as Tim Keller said in the quote earlier, sexual intimacy is a radical self-giving. And giving of self, well, it just doesn't really come that naturally. Instead of entering intimacy with our spouse, seeking what they can do for us, why sexual intimacy is a picture of the radical giving of ourselves to our spouse in every way that marriage is. Again, Dr. Keller says in his book on Proverbs, spouses are to give themselves to each other in joyful abandon. When people have sex outside marriage, maintaining their independence and right to walk away at any time, it turns sex into just a dispensed commodity, where both persons remaining detached and in control. Instead, sexual union should always and only take place between a husband and a wife who share every other kind of union, legal, social, financial, personal, and marriage. Then sex becomes a sign of the union and a way to deepen it. To give yourself to someone else in this way, it takes intention. It takes planning. It takes wooing. It takes dying to self. It takes seeking forgiveness when we fail at it. It takes offering that forgiveness without Earning, What a beautiful picture of God's design for sexual intimacy. What a delight this is intended to be by God in our lives. But it's not lost on me that this isn't the reality for many of us. Some of us are not married, though we so long to be. Some of us were married before, but the union was broken by us or by our spouse or both. And now we are left to kind of pick up the pieces. And many of us have walked many days of our lives down the path of sexual foolishness and those wounds And those abuses, maybe done by us or done to us, haunt us. Is there hope? Yes. Hope is available to each and every one of us. But first, we have to understand our predicament because the end of Proverbs 5, starting at verse 21, this is what we read. For your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. God sees my choices and your choices. And he ponders our path. And what he sees, well, it's not good. Whether we walk the road of sexual foolishness or we get into a temptation of a different kind, we've all done evil deeds and have evil thoughts. And what does Proverbs 5 say our evil deeds and our evil thoughts do to us? What does God see when he ponders our paths? He sees we're ensnared in our sins. The cords of our sins hold us tight We are led astray by our own great folly. We will die. Have any of you felt this reality? Ensnared in your sins? Like maybe you you won out, but like feeling like you're just so far down this path, you can't even remember how you got on it. You don't know how far back you started on this road. You don't know like where the off-ramp could be. You're looking for one everywhere. You can't find it. It's a hopeless feeling. I, I can't seem to break the grasp of this sin. In fact, earlier in Proverbs 5, there's this haunting line that I think is a reality for all of us at some point in our life. When he refers to the adulterous woman, Proverbs 5, 6 says, she gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she doesn't even know it. Ensnared in sin, wandering aimlessly, hoping to find life and satisfaction, but oblivious to what awaits the end of her path. Yet, as God ponders our paths, And he sees our predicament. He isn't moved away from us in wrath, but toward us in grace. He's a gracious ponderer. But how can we know that? That sounds great. How can we actually know that though? Well, for those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, you may have picked up on a 2 specific phrases in Proverbs 5 that sounded kind of familiar. Again, Proverbs 5, 3, and 4, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. And then verse 21, "For, for your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. Well, this sounds a lot like Hebrews 4. Well, Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. While the words that lead to all kinds of foolishness begin sweet, but turn bitter and sharp, the word of God begins sharp, even sharper than any other sword there is, because he judges not just our paths, but the actual thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God helps us see how we got on the path of death in the first place by exposing our heart's desires. But although God's word begins sharper than a double-edged sword, exposing every aspect of our lives before him, it can actually turn into healing and nourishment for our souls. It can bring life. The question would be, how? Because if you continue reading Hebrews, right after we are laid bare before God, we read this. <clears throat> Therefore, a beautiful word. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, God sent Jesus, the son, to walk the road we didn't walk. The road that leads to life. But instead of getting the initial blessing Jesus deserved, he received what awaits us on our road, death and the grave. God absorbed the wrath in himself so that he could now move toward us in grace. He is our gracious ponderer. The off-ramp on our foolish paths, be it sexual foolishness or any other sin that you are ensnared in is not a road we forge. We cannot forge our own off-ramp, but it is a bridge in the shape of a cross that leads back to the path of life. The cross where Jesus, the son of God, when thirsty was offered wine bitter with gall, sweet but bitter, and he refused to drink it. The cross where Jesus, the son of God, was not wrapped in the cords of his sin, but was nailed to the cross for our sin. The cross where Jesus, the son of God, died for our sins so that we may walk the path of life. This is how he is our great high priest who stands between us and God and gives us access to the throne of our gracious ponderer where we will receive mercy and grace in our time of need. How has that happened? By faith. Let us hold tight to the faith we profess. That's what Hebrews says. By faith in Jesus, trusting his love for us is true That his grace for us is sufficient to cover all of our sin, sexual and otherwise. Do you want this healing in your life? Don't you need it? It's available today. Jesus is the one who can see you fully even more than your spouse, can see the depths of your heart and say, mine. I'll take it. I love you. I'll change you. Would you come to him today? As a call to action this morning, first, if you're here today and you would just, you would not be a disciple of Jesus, like you would just not call yourself a follower of him or if you're watching online and you would say, yeah, not, not there yet, not ready. I think two things are clear for you today. Number one, you are on a path that leads to death and destruction but you're not gonna find judgment here because we've all been on that path. We were all saved from that path if we are in Christ. But the second thing that's clear is that there's a way off the path. And it's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the bridge from this road that leads to death that you don't see any off-ramps because you can't make them on your own, but there is one that was made for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Take the off-ramp, take the bridge come to Jesus. You don't have to sort out all your past sins before you do that. You can't. He can sort it out. And what you will find is He's a gracious ponderer. As He ponders and examines your path, He's offering you grace. Not just get-out-of-jail-free card, a transformative kind of grace. That actually changes those desires over time. That changes the allure of sexual morality. You begin to see through the facade. That's you today. Would you come to Jesus? Stop delaying. I just feel like I need to say this too. If you're online, and this is later in the week, who knows when, email the church call the church office, you can find it on Facebook or the internet, reach out to us, we would love to chat with you. Second, if you are in the room today and you're a disciple of Jesus, I wanna take a minute for you to consider. I mean, we literally said, Proverbs, one of the main messages, you just haven't thought enough about anything. So it's time to think for a minute. So whatever posture is comfortable for you, if you wanna bow your head, if you wanna keep your eyes open, it's totally fine nothing crazy is going to be going on up here. But I want you to get in a position where you can focus for a minute. First thing I'd like for you to do is just to think and ask the Holy Spirit to show you, do you have any desires that are in the wrong context? As I was saying yesterday, do you have earlier, do you have desires? Like Jesus says, that it's, it's, a, it's a desire, but it's a, a strong desire in the wrong way. Ask the Spirit to show you, to reveal that to you. Brings that to your mind as you've wrestled with that. There's no shame. Romans 8 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, would you take that, that He's brought your attention, whatever it is, it may not even have anything to do with what we talked about this morning. Take that and confess that that is wrong, that it is a desire in the wrong context, that it is outside of His design. Confess that to Jesus. And then third, ask the spirit to give you intentional repentance. What I mean by that is ask him to show you what are some ways that I can put some, I can get further away from that path that leads me to that. Repentance is not simply changing the mind, it is that, but it's changing the mind with intention. to to turn away and to make a new way, to, to walk in a new way. So ask the Spirit to give you wisdom in that. Lastly, after all of that, would you believe that because of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven seated at the right hand of God, you actually have access to confidently approach God in your time of need when you're tempted, when you failed? when you don't feel strong enough, that he is there saying, come on. Mercy and grace are available. Ask the spirit to help you believe that instead of the lies that we often believe in that moment. Our Father, we are so just in awe of your grace and your mercy. The fact that you ponder our paths, that you look at the way that we have walked and you're moved to compassion. We are not worthy of such love. But we are in need of such love. Would you continue throughout this week, throughout our lives as we think through our lives, as we consider our choices, and as we think about where our beliefs and desires and thoughts, where these all come from, would you give us wisdom from your word? Would you give us wisdom from other followers of Jesus? Would you make this bear fruit in our lives in keeping with repentance? Would you make us a people who... Delight in your sexual wisdom and who are healed by the power of your grace. We love you. Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.